All right, welcome back to the Come Follow Me Book of Mormon Central podcast Thanks, with your hosts, hello. Lynn Wilson and John Cho. Good to have you here. Good to be here. Good to be here. <laughs> so today we're talking about the book of Joshua, covering three key questions, of course, as we always do. How does this bring me closer to Christ? How does the Book of Mormon help me understand the Old Testament? And how does this help me live a more Christ-like life? And it's just packed with all three. Joshua is such a fabulous example of our Savior. You know, the name Yeshua is the same name as Jesus. And it means either Jesus saves or God is deliverer or save now. I've read a lot of, of different definitions of the word in the ancient text, but the idea that Yeshua is the same name of our Savior is just so in keeping with the completion of this Exodus cycle as we've just finished up the laws of Moses and the books of Moses and each story typified of our Savior and showed the way to return to heaven. We now are almost entering the promised land. We've almost finished our 40 years, like the purification cycle. And who then is to lead us into the promised land but Yeshua? You know, after we've gone through the baptism and the gift of the Holy Ghost and the sacramental symbols and the symbols of the priesthood and the sim, you know, of authority, and Yeshua is the one who will now lead us into the promised land. It's just beautiful, Joshua or Jesus. But I guess we should probably start with the outline of the book Let's before we jump outline. into the text. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the first four chapters are these wonderful, encouraging preparation. This is what you have to do to enter the promised land. And they're filled with typologies of our Savior as well. And then we get the exciting battles of the conquest and how God fights their battles. This is not Joshua's battle, even though Joshua is the general. He, it is not his battle. It is God's battle, and he will fulfill his covenants. And then the 10 chapters there in the middle, 13 to 23, or the last half, really talk about the settlement of the tribes. And I would encourage anyone who's reading this to open up a map when you read these 10 chapters and just have that next to you. I, I love Dr. Brown's graphic Bible, but any good map will help you follow where these settlements of these tribes are. There's a few sermons and a little counsel given in there, but most of it is the settlement. But our two last sermons are my favorites. I just love Joshua chapter 24 and 25 as he talks about the need for this covenant and the need for complete obedience. He sounds so much like Moses. Do you remember at the back of the tail end of Deuteronomy, we have the Moses's last two sermons, and here we have Joshua's last two. And the most famous segment there is, choose ye this day whom ye will serve, you know. As for me and my house, I will serve the Lord. Just powerful as... He he talks about that. But do you want me to go into the historical background or do you I, have... I do. I let's let's cover I was just about to say that. Uh, let's cover a little bit about Joshua before this book, right? Like what's what's his experience? Oh, the, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. oh who who is? That's who, a great who idea. Is okay, who, who is, is Joshua? Joshua? Let's just yeah, the, quick review. So before the children of Israel had to get to Sinai, do you remember that Joshua was the he was the rookie general? against the battle of Rephidim, against the Amalekites. And I had referred to them as the har harbingers of death. And the Amalekites fight and fight and fight everywhere the children of Israel go over the next thousand years. They're always fighting these people. And this is when Moses had his arms raised up and they were able to conquer with his arms, all those beautiful symbols. That's Joshua. That was his rookie battle. And he so was Joshua's a young general. was in the valley fighting and while yes, Moses had exactly, his hands up. Yeah. exactly. Thanks for that clarification. He's Moses' assistant on Mount Sinai. I don't know if you remember. He was the one up there. He was not down making the golden calf with Aaron. He was up there. He's one of the 12 spies. He's one of the 
two who had the courageous and faithful account of, yes, it's a land of milk and honey, and yes, it's filled with people, but with God's help, we can do anything. He reminds me almost of young David against Goliath. He's one of the first to see the promised land. Ooh, right. Yeah, Yeah, he's already been there. Ooh, I'm glad you said that. Um, He also defended Moses when the people wanted to go back to Egypt. And I love, just as a reminder, in Numbers 27, it says, Joshua had the Spirit of the Lord. He is a prophet. He is able to bear witness um, from his own experience with the Lord. And then we're told at the end that he is set apart by the laying on of hands from Moses. It's very clear who will be following him. He's a perfect example of our Savior, I I think. Any anything you remember about him that I forgot? Did we get no, anything else? Those, those are fantastic. I, I you know, just to pick up where you left off with there, I do see him as a type, a different type of leader than Moses. Moses wasn't the warrior. Right. So this is a warrior leader, but who had the spirit. Yeah. Right? And, and he's also the, a prophet. The man for the time now. This is exactly who they need. And this to lead book them into begins the, the books of the, you know, the Jews divide their Hebrew Bible into the the law, the prophets, and the writings. And Joshua is the first of the prophets. In our text, though, it's organized so that it follows the books of Moses chronologically, just like Acts of the Apostles follows the four Gospels. And so the storyline just continues chronologically, and that's how it's organized in our our text. But historically, Joshua is coming into the Promised Land at the ideal time in world history— to conquer. It, it's just amazing. There's no danger, obviously, threatening from Egypt right now. Most of the army was decimated by the 10 plagues and the waters of the Red Sea. And prior to the decimation of Egypt, Egypt had rained havoc on this land of Canaan. And so it had been reduced in its strength. The Philistines, the Canaanites, everybody, the Moabites, all of them had been reduced already by Egypt. And then now they're at an easier size to be taken over by the people of the Lord. And then on the western border, the Mediterranean, all the energy there, starting in about 1200, Troy is being attacked and so it's it's further over by the Greece. You know, they're not they're not worried about this little end part of the fertile crescent. And so it's a, it's an ideal time. And I just see the Lord's hand in history so clearly. You know, the time of Lehi leaving in 600 BC was the best time for travel in the ancient world. And here again, the Lord has prepared the way for hundreds of years to be ready exactly when the Lord wants Joshua to enter. I think it's so amazing because it coincides with the forty year, the end of the forty years. Yes, exactly. Yeah, it's amazing. It, yeah, it is. The and Lord's Joshua's timing is the training. miracle. Yeah. Is so miraculous. Yeah, jo- Joshua's had training not just spiritually but tactically as well. Yes, he's fought many battles. I mentioned that one with Rafidim, but he's fought the Moabites. He's fought other battles as well. Yeah, man for the time on the other side of Jordan. I don't know what themes do you see there. In the book, I well, my first before I even get before I even get into the text, I think of a a modern example of that as well. Just likening it to kind of modern times of the saints coming out to Utah. Yes, I was lucky enough to serve my mission in in Sacramento, where we had the gold rush. Sutter's Mill was was in my last area, right? I got to go visit on preparation days, right? And the timing of the Lord was there too, one hundred percent, because what was happening there was. Actually, the Mormon battalion actually dug up the gold at Sutter's Mill, right? Yeah, they were the first ones to find it. That's right, right. But many of them left and went back to Salt Lake anyway, and that's a whole story. But what ended up happening was, as there's this massive of hundreds of thousands of people in this exodus, they all passed through Salt Lake, and they would trade gear with the Latter-day Saints just at the right time, right when they needed it, because obviously they're persecuted 
Oh, and you're so, talking about the miracle of the timing. Right, yes. the time, the miracle of this timing of... And Joshua has a miracle of timing. Yeah. Yes, yeah, so it's repeated over and over so again. The Lord is so kind. It's yeah, amazing. He, Planned over centuries. And the, then just apply that to your own life and we can be more patient with how things are unfolding in the history of the church. What other themes other than the miracle of the timing do you see here? Well, uh, briefly mentioned, I would say a man for the time. Oh, right? Joshua. So, yes. Yeah, yeah. So, so we talk about the timing, but also the preparation that went into that for him personally. This is a deviation from from who they knew as, say, a Joseph, right? Or a, or a Moses. This is a different person. I see one of my favorite themes here is it's not Israel's battles. It's God's battles. Yeah. They're not Joshua's battles. They're God's battles. And in fact— We see that with the sun. Uh-huh. Yeah, the sun standing sun. still yeah. and things yeah. like that. Yeah. And I, I see another theme of this covenant. You know, if you want to live in the promised land, you're going to have to follow the covenant. You're going to have to be obedient to God's laws if you want to live in the promised land with freedom. I like that a lot because this goes into, you know, the, I wonder what the Israelites' expectations were. It's like, we're finally entering this land of promise. Life is going to be easy. Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, <laughs> no. work. Yeah, work they're, they're stop, their manna stops. As soon as they cross over, yeah. their mana stops. It's not going to be easy. They've got to work by the sweat of their brow to get their food now. And isn't it, isn't it interesting to read that the clothes didn't even wear out? They were able to go through that whole time in the same, you know, I thought, oh, no, no, no. You're now responsible for a whole bunch of stuff. But the symbolism is so beautiful. The Lord will feed you. The Lord will take care of you. You now have the promised land where you have a stewardship and God will still feed you and still take care of you. But you have the responsibility to work. It, the promised land is not a land of rest. Well, rest in the Lord's sense of the glory of God, but it is a land of, of work. That's a great theme. I love just looking at it from a bird's eye view. One more theme just came to my mind while you were talking about it, this closing of the Exodus cycle. Just like in ancient Israel, we in the modern world can see the same thing. In order to enter into the promised land or our internal inheritance or whatever you want to look at too, we have to have, we have to escape life's wildernesses. You know, we have to leave the wilderness and follow Joshua or Yeshua or Jesus. And the only way to escape the wilderness of life is to follow him and his way into eternal inheritance. Any other themes you see there? Um, I get this Captain Moroni kind of vibe <laughs> from Joshua. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> he's just such a strong conviction, a man of spirit. So men of and action can be men of spirit. he's not a man who wants to necessarily kill. He wants to do God's will and carry out God's plan. Yeah, he's not timid. No, he is one bold man. We don't have any letters to Pahoran, luckily. Right, that's true. That's true. <laughs> that's a great analogy. Straight to the Book of Mormon. Terrific. Okay. Do you want to start chapter one? Let's or do you want to? Yeah. I forgot to mention that uh, historically when I was talking about, did I talk about the Bronze Age completing and this, this is now uh, the Iron Age? No, yeah. We talked a little about timing, but not, not yeah. that detail. So I, I think that's pretty significant that we now have left, we're, the Bronze Age is really what the Israelites were still living in, but the Iron Age has come from the West and the Canaanites and the Philistines are in chariots and they have horses, they have a cavalry. And so the valleys are very difficult to take because the Iron Age is here. And it even says their weapons are out of iron. And the Israelites are more, at least it looks like as I, as I read the text, they're more like guerrilla warfare. You know, they're hemmed up in the mountains. They are really good at, if they're in an obedient and in a righteous state of the Lord causing crazy miracles to happen, whether it's an earthquake or whatever, the Lord will fight their battles in crazy ways 
but they are still very primitive in their battle practices. They're much more reliant on the Savior to yeah. fight their battles. I noticed that too. I'm glad you got clarified a lot of that because this puts in context the Battle of Jericho and other battles. Makes a lot of sense. You know, before we, I, I said I want to jump in the text, but I want to read something here from Joshua chapter 1, verse 1. When we referred to, it says, the death of Moses. We talked last time about Moses did not die, according to Joseph Smith's translation. He was translated. But I found this text from Josephus. So he's this Jewish historian writing back, you know, a thousand years, several hundred plus a thousand years later. And he also says that at the death of Moses, the children of Israel and Moses are weeping. And now as he went thence to the place where he was to vanish out of their sight, so he doesn't say they die, they all followed after him weeping. But Moses beckoned with his hand and bade that they should stay quiet. And on Mount Erebim, he dismissed the Senate, that was the 70, and he was going to embrace Eleazar, who's the high priest, the son of Aaron, and Joshua. And he was still discoursing with them. Moses wasn't finished giving his discussion. When a cloud stood over him, he disappeared in a certain valley. And although he is written in the holy book that he died, he went to God. So Joseph Smith's translation has a second witness here with the records of Josephus that were written at a different time. So that is is terrific. So the children of Israel, I think, right now are just waiting just north of the Dead Sea. It's one of the lowest points on the planet. I don't know exactly where they're crossing. It's called Bethabara, place of the crossing in both the Book of Mormon and the Old Testament, and the um, has a second witness that Jesus is baptized there in John's gospel, as well as the Book of Mormon stating there, which I think is really beautiful symbolism of the lowest place on the earth is where we figuratively are laid under a grave and we're born again. I also like, I like that, that. That's image of being born again. I guess we'll get that in a few chapters. Remind me to talk about that when we get in a few chapters, because right now, these first four chapters on, are on how to prepare to cross over. And why don't we just start? Yeah. Chapter 1, verse 2. Arise and go over this Jordan, thou and all the people with, of the land, which I give unto them. So I think this is Joshua's first recorded revelation. The Lord's telling him what to do, and, and he gives him his whole mission call. I want you to lead the children of Israel into the promised land. And then skipping down to verse 5, the Lord promises him this beautiful promise. As I was with Moses, so I will be with thee. I will not fail thee nor forsake thee. You, you had to feel insecure in that position because, as you mentioned, Joshua had already been in the promised land. He had seen the giants. He had seen the Canaanites. He had seen all these things. And now the Lord's saying, don't worry. I've got your back. I've got your right hand and your left hand. I'm, I'm here for you. Really powerful. I was impressed with the word courage that shows up here. Oh, and it's repeated and repeated. Over thematically, I would say. Yeah. And so I, I thought if a word is being repeated, let's just look for some parallelism. So I, I took chapter one, verse five, and just started looking for parallels. And I found a beautiful little chiasmus that talks about courage in the sense of developing faith. He's not talking about courage of, okay, gird up your loins and just be courageous. He's saying, I want you to remember the Lord and develop your courage that way. But the center of the, let me just point this out to you. I don't know if you want to look in your scriptures or not, but verse five, I will not fail thee nor forsake thee. That's just what I just had read, this first prophecy. But then look down at verse nine at the very end. God is with thee whithersoever thou goest. 
Isn't that a beautiful parallel? Yeah. And then again in verse 6, be strong and be of good courage. He repeats it again in verse 9, be strong and be not afraid or dismayed. Often the second parallel is a duplication. So he not only says the words again, but then he duplicates it in another set of words. Then the third arm of this chiastic structure where each has a parallel in an X formation of the Greek letter chi. He wants to divide their inheritance into the promised land. And in verse 8 and 9, he talks about their good success or the success of their inheritance that now I command thee. And then in verse 7, do and prosper. You know, I, I want you to observe all that the Lord has given you and do it. And then in verse 8, do according to all that is written therein, for that thou and thy, I will make thy way prosper. And then in this little center point in chapter 1, verse 8, it's the center. It's the, this is what the author wanted us to remember the most. And speak the book of the law and observe according as it is written. Remember, they don't have a lot of copies of this, so they've got to read it. People aren't being able to read their own copies, so he's, they've got to speak it out loud. I want you to, to teach the law, and I want people to observe the law. And then the second half, I want you to meditate on the law. This idea of always remembering God's commandments or always remembering the blessings of God in his life, in our life, I think is the way they're going to develop this courage. So he starts out by saying, be strong and be of good courage. Well, for, he starts out by saying, I'm going to be with you. So that allows you to have courage because you're with God. And then the center point is, and you can maintain that if you'll re always remember me, if you'll meditate on this, if you'll look for So it was just a beautiful little chiasmus that— I love that. I, I can't help think of Nephi's journey through this. The I will go and do stuck out immediately. Oh, Reading great. this, as you, as you talk about, I will go and do. Yeah, he Nephi just has that Joshua. man of action, right? Yeah. I will, I will do this. He, I see this, and, and I may be mistaken, but but in, in verse 8, the book of law shall not depart out of thy mouth. I think he's like, you don't have to be Moses. I want you to be Joshua. Right. Ooh, yeah. I need you to be you. Prepared you. I need you to be you. The Lord I, loves I us where we that. are. Wherever we are, He can use yeah. us. Yeah. Um, if we have a soft heart. Oh, John, that's powerful. And then the the second part where I was thinking, kind of this this Nephi parallel is, you know, this is going to be hard. A lot of courage. But there's there's scriptures about you know if you just read the scriptures and meditate on them, temptation is a little bit easier to deal with. Oh, right? oh, temptation f can flee. Yeah, right. if you have if you put forth faith. Yeah, oh, that's read, great. read and study, and and he does it. He does that, and he's rewarded. I see the first type of Christ for me is in verse eleven, Joshua chapter one, verse eleven. Prepare, and then he goes on, skipping a few words. Three days you shall pass over. And then skipping a little bit, to possess the land which the Lord your God giveth you. This idea of three days before the resurrection. Right. The Lord is preparing the way when he organizes the missionary work in the spirit world while his body lays in the tomb. He is preparing the way for everyone to pass over into their promised lands. And our own lives, as we look for the Savior, are to be filled with preparation before we can enter into our promised lands. And it's symbolic of our Savior's death and resurrection as he has opened the way for us. It's just a beautiful way of typifying the Lord. I like that. My next favorite verse is, is 16. Do you have any before 16 that you wanted to talk about? He gives them the counsel for their wives and their children and their cattle. And... Well, well, one thing, just a little bit of just thematically earlier, this is the literal fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. Oh, of course the, it the is. The inheritance yeah. of land. They finally, this is a finally, finally, right? Yeah, hundreds finally, of years. Yeah. And they're going to finally get Abraham's land. Before it was just Abraham and Lot or else Jacob's tribes. And yeah. 
and Esau's tribes and few and few and few. But so now already, the, we've already seen the, the you know, countless seeds, right? Countless seed. Yes. This is happening and it continues to this day, obviously. But the spiritual part has been passed on, you know, through Moses and, and now Joshua and now the, the other part of the covenant. May we be patient in the Lord fulfilling our promises. If Abraham is now waiting 600 years, <laughs> you know, whatever it's been, 500 years since that promise was given. Yeah, that's so you, you had You had another verse. You said oh, 16? I just love verse 16. This is still the Lord speaking. No, no, no. These are the people speaking to the Lord. Excuse me. All that thou commandest, we will do. And whithersoever thou send us, we will go. It, it does ring of Nephi, yeah, as you it does. just mentioned. Love it. They have that. They're so well prepared. These people have gone through the trials. Their faith is high. They're excited to go, even with hardships. It reminds me of a missionary right before he's leaving for the empty sea. They're, they know it's going to be hard and they're willing to do it. And then we go right into Joshua chapter 2 with the Lord having a very unusual spy. So we repeat again <laughs> Moses' scenario of sending spies into the land. And I think Joshua is, the book anyway, is very bold to include this woman who is called a harlot. And she becomes a hero. And you know the story. She hides the two spies on the rooftop under the sheaves and then she lets them out a few days later through and lets them hide and she lies for them and scares people away. But she is such a fascinating character. You know, she's introduced as a as a harlot and yet she believes, she has great faith. She says, I know what God has done for you and I want to become, I want to be one with you. So spare my life, spare my family's life. We want to live amongst you. We want to be believers of your God because we have seen what you've done and I will um, risk my life to take care of you. And I almost see her either like a woman at the well. Yes, I was thinking the same thing. You said Some, it first. Somebody, <laughs> <laughs> well, there's, there's many examples of yeah, great many. people great sinners who repent and are all in when they repent. I mean, look at the anti-Nephi-Lehi's. You know, they're all in when they repent. But the Jews have a, don't really like the idea that Rahab is a harlot because she becomes a descendant of King David. You know, it's through her lineage that King David comes. And so they choose to use a figurative interpretation of this word. And I'll read you what Josephus says about it when he's describing the spies coming into land in the legend, history of the Jews. He says, there were some persons who came from the Hebrews who came up to view the city as spies, and they were in the inn kept by Rahab. So they have her as an innkeeper. So there are many who interpret the word zonah, harlot, as figurative for somebody who keeps a house and people come and go. And perhaps they had similar jobs. I, I don't know. But the word is harlot. But sometimes it is used figuratively. I think it's about 19 times, if I remember right, used in the Old Testament. Don't, don't quote me. I'm not exactly sure. Go look it up yourself. But it's over a dozen times. And sometimes it is used figuratively for intercourse with foreign nations or for when people commit a spiritual idolatry. Sometimes they're called fornicators. And so we do find this idea of inappropriate intercourse used figuratively in Scripture for idolatry. And here she is, a foreign nation. So you can justify it in many ways. But I want to just leave the doorway open that she is a repentant woman. And she, to my understanding of most of the ancient world, if you had been a harlot, it was not your choice. 
You don't choose to go into that as a profession. You are forced into it. That doesn't mean all women were, but in much of the ancient history and modern history, that is how it is. And so I appreciate the fact that she recognizes God and that she has a soft heart and that she asks to join the children of Israel. And these wonderful spies say, yes. And she is given as an example of faith in the book of Hebrews. Right. Isn't that awesome? Hebrews chapter 11, verse 31. And again, in the book of James, chapter 2, verse 25, Rahab is our hero of faith. I love it. I think thematically, it certainly fits with the Christian narrative, right? No matter where you are, the Lord will meet you where you are and be prepared for greatness. Yes. Beautiful. Right. Anything else in chapter two that you want to touch base on before we move to chapter oh, I, three? I think we've got a lot to cover. Yeah, <laughs> No, we're going way too slow. Okay. Okay. <laughs> well, we certainly see Joshua typifying Christ as he leads these disciples into the promised land now. And the exodus cycle concludes. And one little detail here that I love in um, chapter two is once the spies get back and Joshua is giving this last sermon in chapter three, he asks the people to sanctify themselves and they are to do, look at verse five in chapter three, Joshua said unto the people, sanctify yourselves for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And I've just seen them not appreciate things like the pillar by a fire. I mean, this is such a dramatic presence of God, the cloud by day and the pillar by night. The Lord is with you. And yet he's still saying, sanctify yourself. It reminds me of the hymn, More Holiness Give Me. You know, he's saying, we are now going into holy land and I want you to be prepared. And so skip ahead to verse 15. The Lord has promised them that the waters are going to open of the Jordan River, just like they did before in the Red Sea or Dead Sea or Reed Sea, whatever you want to, I didn't mean Dead Sea, I meant um, Reed or Red. But somehow in the waters are going to open up in a heap in verse 13. And in verse 15, it says, they that bear the ark, and they were come to the Jordan, the feet of the priests that bear the ark were dipped into the brim of the water. The water did not separate. They had to walk into it before it opened. And I thought, how many times in my life have I had to move forward with faith, believing that the Lord would, you know, we know that if you pay your tithing and you're wise in your choices of your monetary needs, the Lord will provide for you. And so many times I have just had to trust that the Lord would provide and miracles come. They dipped their feet in the water before the water separated. They had to walk into the water. I, I just love that. I was thinking through as you were reading this, I had some of the same thoughts as I was reading the first time, but this idea of, you know, they've had 40 years of sanctification. They've had pillar and manna and all these kinds of things, right? Constant miracles. We, we touched this theme on the past of yeah. don't take those miracles for granted. And so for this call to sanctification, for me personally, what, what this is like, look, I live in the Restoration. I have the Book of Mormon. I have Modern Revelation. I have things like this. But take a minute. <laughs> yeah. And just step back. And step back. And see the miracles that we have. Yeah. Everyone is a dramatic miracle. That is incredibly sanctifying when I actually take time to do that. And I am prepared to have more faith. I also appreciate the idea of faith leading us to being born again. Yes. Because they've already come through the waters once, which was symbolically described by Paul as a baptism in 1 Corinthians 10. And now they are coming again. They are washed and cleansed again, on walking through on dry ground, it even says in verse 17. And we have, they're being born again in order to enter the promised land, which is just powerful. 
in the symbolism of our Savior as we're looking for types of Christ in the Old Testament. And our great Captain of the Lord hosts is waiting for him. Well, I guess we should, should we touch on anything in chapter four that you want to touch on or do we need to go a little bit faster and move up? Yes. How about the stones? The stones. I, I want to cover that. Yeah. Yeah. They want to make a memorial. This is verse three of chapter four. They take these stones from the very middle and make this great memorial and say this was, you know, the area that they had to walk across is it's about 30 feet nowadays, but we've got dams and other things. So it's a little bit different, but they built a bridge over this area to go into Jordan. And it's it's pretty wide. So they're having to carry these stones at least 15 feet, if not more, these huge boulders that they're going to build this enormous memorial so that the next generation can learn and the next generation can learn. And let's build memorials in memory of these things. And it then gives archaeological evidence later on, but it also helps our heart and our soul to remember back, remember back, remember back. I love that, that he was paying attention, like, you know, one from every tribe, you know, since yes. someone. So like, so they participated in this miracle, right? Everyone needs to be involved. That's great. I'm glad you pointed that out. So they pass over and it says in verse 14, on that day, the Lord magnified Joshua in the sight of all of Israel and they feared him or they had respect for him, even as they feared Moses in all the days of his life. And the Lord spake to Joshua saying, command the priests that bear the Ark of the Testament that they come up out of the Jordan. So they've been waiting there this whole time as the water was separated and now they can come out. And the monument is built in Gilgal, and the people camp in Gilgal. And is that where the manna stops? Um, I'm not I sure. I know that's where they circumcise. Yeah. And they may, they may get another chapter or two before the manna starts. But chapter 5 is where the Lord says, okay, we're here. We're going to renew the covenant, and we are going to have a circumcision of everyone who hasn't been circumcised yet. And so they had to camp there for a long time because there may have been an Iron Age and a Bronze Age, but these have been Bedouins. These these people are not probably using the latest technology in their day, and, and these may have been a very dangerous time for life to be using either a stone or other type of metals that were not very safe at the time, and it's just a very dangerous surgery. But they the renewal of the covenant, people were willing to do it, and they came out in verse 5, everyone circumcised, and then they celebrate the Passover again in verse 10. You see all these repeating cycles from Moses. He's such a great type of the prophet and also a great type of Christ because Christ, again, fed the people in his day and age with feeding the 5,000 and the 4,000. But the Passover symbols were, so we know it was the springtime. It's their first spring in Canaan. So they were coming in when there is a harvest available. You know, the barley harvest, at least, would have been perhaps available in the springtime when they come through. Yeah, the manna stops uh, in verse 12. Verse 12, there it is. Chapter 5, verse 12. So it's a good thing they came in at the time of the harvest so that they could at least start making their own food. The Lord will cover them until that time. But remember, they saved some of the manna inside the, in the Ark, Ark of the Covenant. That's right. As this beautiful temple symbolism that Jehovah will take care of you. And then chapter 6, the Battle of Jericho. It's very symbolic, isn't it? I think it's a type of the second coming as well as they go through this ritual of seven days and seven trumpets and seven times around, and they're not even speaking initially. Isn't that interesting? 
I wish I had brought my shofar. Have you ever blown a shofar? No. John? Oh, I'm terrible at Next it. My time. kids, I've got some trumpet <laughs> players in my families and a French horn player. They can blow that shofar. You know, the shofar is the, the ram's horns. They are hard to get a sound out, but wow, it sounds like a powerful ritual. Do you remember what seven is symbolically? to the Hebrews? I don't, not to the Hebrews, no. So it's it's the whole idea of the creation. It's complete, it's whole, it's your perfect, God's perfect organization. It's complete here. And so it's representative, I think, of the second coming. There will be, according to section 77 in the Doctrine and Covenants, where the Joseph asks about the symbolism of the book of Revelation, and he says, each seal of the history of the earth will be a thousand years and these 7,000 years will be the complete or the whole history of the earth. And I don't know if it's literal or figurative, but possibly an overlay of both and to some degree at least. And so they go around until the walls fall down, until the earth will fall down and the Savior comes and all the wicked will be destroyed here at Joshua's time. And when the Savior comes again, all the wicked will be destroyed. So we see that carried out in verse 16. And he says in verse 17, the whole city will be accursed. Everybody but Rahab and her family that lived there on the wall. And they have that little red string, that that rope that was used to notate who they were. And everything is going to be taken. In verse 9, it says, 19, it reads, but all the silver and the gold and the vessels of the brass and the iron were consecrated to the Lord and to his treasury for the temple. But everything else is utterly destroyed. In verse 21. Everything else is utterly destroyed. And so they carry it out. But it sounds like another chapter later, though, somebody did not obey those rules and it affected all of Israel. Do you remember the Battle of Ai where in chapter 7 where they unfortunately do not conquer and Joshua just falls down before the Lord and says, what happened? You told me you were going to fight my battles. Yeah. And the Lord says, I can't fight your battles because somebody stole something from Jericho. And it was a lot. I did the conversion in, from the King James. It's five pounds of silver and a pound and a quarter of gold, or 2.3 kilos of silver and 575 grams of gold is the rough estimate of what these numbers are in. So, And the guy just buried him under his tent. I mean, he. I just have to stop and ask you, as we liken this unto ourselves, so many times we think, oh, I can do what I want to do. It's not affecting anybody else. And yet, it affected the entire children of Israel. I wonder if this is one reason why it's so hard establishing a Zion society is because everybody's righteousness affects everybody else. So many children of Israel were being killed in the battle at Ai because this one man sinned. No man is an island. What we do affects everybody. It's just tragic. It only takes one note to make a chord out of tune. And so many people lost their lives because this one man sinned. And how does that relate to us now? I think it goes both ways because we have a sense of, well, let me start with the good, you know, one, the amount of good that one person can do. Right. Right. You know, Abinadi, I think. Look at Abinadi as a great example. The amount of good that can be happen from the one person. Joseph, right? If we go more... Um, to the Old Testament. To the Old Testament, yeah. But if we're going to look at the Book of Mormon, look at the harm that Alma the Younger did initially. Agreed. And the good that he did later. Right. And so I, I, I you know... Out of small things proceedeth that which is great, whether it's for ill or whether it's there's for something, good. Well, the, the very word purity, you know, I think is everything has to be in order. Everything without exception. So, I mean, this is the human condition though, right? Yeah. You know, and I'm sure history isn't over. No. And of course the Lord, the Lord will. the Lord consequences happen. Yes. He that allowed that to happen to teach this fabulous lesson. 
And um, I just hope we can learn from this lesson so that we don't have to repeat it ourselves. Yeah. Mistakes have consequences. Oh, <laughs> this very... whole, yeah. And the book of Judges we'll talk about next is filled with consequences, but we're going way too slow. Chapter eight on Shechem, they build this wonderful altar and Joshua wrote a copy of the law there. They stay down and they read the Lord's blessings and cursings and Chapter 9 is sort of tragic because Joshua gets deceived. And, you know, in nowadays where we've got hackers, we've got people out there who are trying to deceive you, I just feel the message to me here was Joshua did not ask God. the, The leaders just believed them and did not ask God. And before we are deceived, may we always check in to see how it fits with what the prophet is saying and how it fits with what the Lord is answering in our prayers. So sad that deception occurred. But the Lord carries on, and another battle is fought in chapter 10. And how in the world does the sun and the moon stand still? (laughs) (laughs) And my dad was a physicist. This has always been a very interesting chapter for our family dinner discussions. Yeah, that's that's a great question. Did it really happen? I don't know. I don't know. It says it, and the the results were very clear. Oh, yeah. Whether it's figurative or what he understood from his perspective, it looked like that. Because sometimes I feel like the prophet is writing from their perspective and it looked like it. But whatever it is, the Lord was fighting their battles. I think that's the fun, the fundamental thing that I took away from it, regardless. Everything from the stones to the sun and the moon standing still. I take from this symbolically is like, look, I always feel like there's more to do than I have time to do. And sometimes it's really important. But it, sometimes it does feel like time stands a little still when the, I'm trying to The Lord to helps us be more efficient in our time. That's a great example of it. I'm glad you said that. It certainly feels that way, you know, when I, when I don't feel like I have enough time and somehow there's time. And then we move into the separation of the land to divide up the inheritances. Chapter 3 to 23, just great maps here. And I loved in chapter 20 the fact that they had cities of refuges. So if someone was guilty of manslaughter, but he was he it was not intended, you know, it was an accident— he can run to the city of refuge and be saved and his families can be raised there and they can not have to suffer consequences of somebody who doesn't want to forgive them. But it would be better, of course, to just forgive them and bring it to peace. But you notice also in chapter 21 that the people of Levi don't get their lands. They just get cities scattered all throughout. The Lord wants the priesthood scattered Everywhere. all throughout. Yeah. And I thought of how the church is now with the priesthood scattered all around the world. He doesn't want us to just hone up in the mountains somewhere. He wants us to be scattered throughout the land and bless and allow ordinances, both on just Sabbath ordinances and temple ordinances, to be scattered everywhere. But my favorite two chapters of this last half, at least, 23 and 24, this parting counsel from Joshua is just so powerful to me. I love the way he recounts what the Lord did for the children of Israel, starting in Egypt and all the way down. And it's a very formal speech. You see this kind of covenant making, not only in the Old Testament, but in other forms of history. I don't know if you've ever read any of the ancient covenant makings of the speech, but Joshua's fits right into this historical pattern there, that they are bringing these parties together, and it outlines exactly what God requires. And I'll end where we started. Choose ye this day whom you will serve, but for me and my house, I will serve the Lord." I feel like the sacrament helps us make that covenant every week, and I hope every night on our knees we can make that covenant as we express our love and devotion to the Lord. Our lives are tied up in covenants. And the Lord fulfilled them all. And the Lord fulfilled them all. The very last verse in 21, the Lord fulfilled them all, all the promises. Powerful. I'm so glad you highlighted that one since I skipped it. Thank you. (laughs) God bless you. God bless you. And God bless Joshua.